Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. We've been in a study of the book of Romans, and if you would, take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. One of our core values at Scotts Hill is that we live on mission. And when we say we live on mission, that means a couple of things. That means that we go on the mission field, but we live on mission everywhere we are. That is, we take on the attitude of a missionary at work, at school, in the restaurant, in the marketplace. Everywhere we go, we want to have the characteristics and the heartbeat of missionaries. That's why we do a lot of mission trip, a lot of mission works. I've been to a lot of countries um, through the ministries of Scotts Hill, and I've been to Ecuador probably the most. I've been there about 14 times to Ecuador. And I love going to Ecuador. And one of the things I love about Ecuador is you go to all of these small villages. Once you get out of the Quito area of 2 million people there, you find these small villages. And in every one of these small villages, there's a little square right in the middle of that village. And in that square are a number of shops, but there's always a Catholic church. And so the church is the centerpiece of every village. And it's a great place to do evangelism because I'll walk through the square and I will just talk to people and I'll say, hey, you know I'm not from around here, don't you? And they'll laugh and they'll say, I'm from America and I just want to find out about your life. Tell me about your family. And I have to first of all tell them I'm not a Jehovah's Witness because they will shut the door and not even talk to you. And so I'm talking to them, I'm building a relationship with them, finding about their family, their children, and all that stuff. And they're really engaged because you're demonstrating that you care about who they are. And then I'll say, I notice that there's a big Catholic church right here in the middle of town. Everybody in this city must be really religious, right? And they'll say, no, no, not many people. I say, well, would you consider yourself to be religious? They say, well, yes, but no, we don't go to church. I said, well, let me ask you this question. Since you grew up in this area, I, I just want to know, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? And they immediately answer, oh, you have to be good. You have to be good. I said, well, what do you mean when you say you have to be good? Well, you have to have high morals. You have to have values. You have to treat people with respect. You have to be kind. You have to be a good person. I said, great. I said, are you a good person? And they'll say, well, I'm better than those people over there. You see those folks on the corner? They're doing drugs right now, and there's a drug deal going on. And I'm better than those girls over there on the other side because they're prostitutes, and they're working out a plan on what they're going to do for the day. And I'm better for all those men in the back there because they're all drunkards and alcoholics. So yeah, I'm better than some people. And when you ask people about heaven... The number one answer is you have to be good. That's not only in Ecuador, but it seems to be the answer around the world. Because the thing is, we like to think of ourselves as good people. And, and a lot of times we want to make ourselves look better than we are. I'm reminded of that 12-year-old boy who went to the dentist for the first time. He wanted to impress his dentist. So he's filling out the form just right. And on the bottom of the form, it said, list two of your favorite hobbies. He wrote, swimming and flossing my teeth. 
I don't know many 12-year-olds who would say that. But we all have the tendency to want to make ourselves look good. Last week, we finished up chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. We began a four-part series in this and explaining Paul is telling us why we need the gospel. And in his legal mind, he is undercutting every excuse that we have to try to say why we don't need the gospel. Last week, he says we need the gospel because God's wrath is on immoral people. And we saw in that, that whole picture that it was a sense of immorality that people refuse to see the truth. They reject God as authority. And what they do is create their own God. So God turns them over to their passions, which in and itself is not merciful, it's wrathful. And those people end up destroying their lives. He left us last week knee deep in just muck and mire. But today he's gonna speak to the second group of people. He's going to speak to the group of people who think they're better than the immoral people. You know, the people who stand and judge immoral people. The people who stand and criticize their lifestyle. The people who stand and say, well, I'm way better than they are. And I have a higher moral plane. And if they would only get their act together and live the way I live, then everything will be good. What we're going to find today is Paul is going to remove this second stumbling block of needing to see the gospel. And that is, he's going to speak to the moralist. To those people who consider themselves good. To those people who consider themselves not spiritual, maybe not a follower of Christ, but you know, I do good things. I give things away. I'm really kind. I'm good to people. And what the Apostle Paul is going to do is going to destroy that argument. And he's going to help us to see that our own personal goodness will never get us to heaven. Now, he's going to leave us waist deep today. Next week, he's going to clip down another one, and he's going to leave us chest deep. And then in two weeks from now, he's going to sink us under the mud. But then in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he pulls us out with the glorious gospel. But today he gives the warning that God's judgment is on the immoral, but it is also on the moralist, those who think they're good enough. So let's read those verses together. Chapter two, verses one through 16. And in these verses, the apostle Paul is gonna give us four truths about God's justice on the moral, the moral person. He begins in verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will re render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Would you join me as we pray? Father, this is a lot for us to take in. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide me and guide our hearts and our thinking as we unpack these verses and we see what you have to say to people who think they're good enough on their own to earn your favor. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Four things he says here. And this is really good because we live in a world that is filled with good people. And I wanna say there are people who are really moral, people who are really nice, people who seem to have their acts together. But here's the problem with the moral person is they think it's always about their own doing and their achieving. And so Paul says four things. Here's the first thing he says is that God's indictment is against a moralist. We find in first that God indicts those people who rest in their own goodness. Here's what he says in verses one and two. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Here's what Paul is saying. You people who like to throw dirt at other people will find later that you have no ground to stand on yourself. Because the way you judging other people is making yourself look good and to build yourself up and to tear other people down. It's the beautiful picture that Jesus paints in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax gatherer who go to the temple together. The Pharisee walks in very proudly with his eyes lifted up and he prays to himself, Jesus says. And here's what he prays. I'm glad I'm not like that tax gatherer. Lord, I am so good. Aren't you glad that I'm on your side? And it's all about himself. He's complimenting himself because he's not like that immoral man. But over here, the tax gatherer is on his face before God, unable even to look up and is beating his chest. And he said, have mercy on me, the sinner. Which of the two do you think walked away justified? 
And the one who's in his own righteousness is constantly looking down at everybody else. They're judging everyone else. It says right here in this passage that they use the same law. That you're passing judgment on another and you condemn yourself. Why? Because everybody has a set of morals that we live by. A person who accuses somebody of lying, but lies himself. Somebody that accuses of somebody engaged in immorality, but they watch it on movies or listen to it in music. Or you might mistreat somebody and you're angry with them, but you find yourself doing the same thing. And when we point our fingers at somebody else, we always have three pointing back at us, don't we? It's always the case. And the moralist is always looking for the worst person to make themselves look better. And the thing is, sometimes we misunderstand our own deeds and how bad they can be. Chuck Swindoll is one of my favorite authors. Aging, I heard him a couple of weeks ago telling the story about an 83-year-old man who went to a drive through restaurant. And the 83-year-old man says, you know, it's hard for me to order like that now because I can't really hear. So I got to keep asking, what did you say? What did you say? I can't hardly see. So it takes me a long time to order. And he says that he was at this drive-in in the speaker section trying to order, and the lady behind him was really angry. And she was really mad. And here's what he says. I noticed her displeasure with me and thought she must have been having a bad day. So when I came to the first window, I told the young lady that I wanted to pay for the lady behind me as well. And I would like both receipts. She responded that it was the nicest thing anyone has done all day. When the lady behind me got to the first window, she was shocked and she began making kind gestures and gratitude and apologies. When I got to the second window, I handed the young man both receipts. So I took my food and hers as well. <laughs> she thought I was doing a good deed for her, but I was not. She was mean to me, and I wanted to teach her a lesson of how meanness hurts other people. Now she will have to go back through the line and start all over to order her food. Isn't, isn't that funny sometimes how, we say, what's wrong with this lady? And I can do the same thing in my self-righteousness. Now don't try that next week, okay? But then he goes on, here's what he says. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do themselves that you will escape? Will you escape the judgment of God? You're the one who's doing that? You're the one who's measuring yourself up? You're the one who's condemning other people and by the standard that condemns them will condemn you? What makes you think you are going to escape? There are two problems that moralists have. First of all, they overestimate their own goodness. They think that they're better than other people. And the moralists think, well, yeah, I will, because I, I, I'm better than that person, and I'm better than that person. Let me take you back to Ecuador. There were four men standing together, and I walked up to them, kind of did the same thing, and I asked the first guy on the end, I said, are you good? He says, yeah, I'm good. I said, how good are you? He said, good enough. I said, you as good as the guy next to you? He said, no, I'm not as good as him. And I said, which of the four of you is the most moral guy in this group? And they all pointed to the guy on the end. So I said, so you're pretty good, aren't you? Yes, I'm good. I live rightly. I said, are you better than Father, Father Brown who lives here? Well, no, I'm not as good as Father Brown. Is Father Brown better than Mother Teresa? 
Well, no, he doesn't compare to Mother Teresa. Does Mother Teresa compare to the Pope? Oh, nobody compares to the Pope. And you know what they were doing? They were judging their goodness based upon the badness of other people. And anytime you judge your goodness based upon the badness of other people, you will always overestimate how good you are. Here's what they did wrong. Secondly, they underestimated the standard of God. What is the standard of God? God's standard is not other people's badness. God's standard is his perfection. And because of that, you and I would never on our own be able to stand before a holy God. No matter how many great deeds we do, it's not based upon the badness of others. It's based on the perfection of God. And so he brings an indictment immediately to those who depend on their goodness. But here's the second thing he does. God demonstrates his impatience with a moralist. God becomes impatient. Now, God is slow to anger, but we saw last week that God's patience runs out, doesn't it? Here's the problem with the moralist. A moralist, when there are things going well in their life, they take credit for their own work at it. But when people are in the ditches, when people are living broken lives, well, it's their fault. You know, if they would have been living a better life, they wouldn't have experienced that. If they would just drag themselves out of the gutter or by their bootstraps, if they would do what I do, if they would practice these principles or do all these things, they'll be good. But here's the other thing they do. They think that all the blessings and the goodness that they have in their life is a reflection of God's approval of them. Well, God must like me. He's given me a good job. God must be in favor of me. I've got a nice house. God has given me an increase on the job. My children are wonderful. My grandchildren love me. So God's favor must be on me. And here's what they miss in verses four and five. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? The word presume is do you take lightly? On the riches, the abundant riches. Are you taking lightly the riches that God has poured on you? That it's in his kindness. That word means benevolence. He is so kind that he gives you everything you need for life. And his forbearance, I love this word. The word forbearance means to hold back. It's the idea of a king holding back his wrath against another enemy. It's the idea that God has built up a dam and he's holding back his judgment right now. And he's patient. He's given plenty of time. And why? That all of this is knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The kindness of God, the goodness of God, the forbearance of God is for the purpose of helping us to see how great he is, how ungreat we are, and how much we need him. And all of the kindness and goodness is meant to draw us to him, to lead us to him and repent and turn from our own goodness and turn to him. But this is what the moralist often does. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, the word hard is sclerosis. It gives us the word arteriosclerosis. There's a hardening of your heart. And he listen to this. You are storing up wrath for yourself 
on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what happens. The moralist thinks they're so good, they don't need to repent. Things are going well in their life. They've got a hardened heart towards God and the gospel, and they're storing up wrath. The word storing means treasuring. They are building a treasure of wrath, but God is holding it back right now. And what they're doing is they're storing and it's building and building and building. Let me give you this illustration one commentator wrote. It's beautiful. He said, it's like a very miserly rich man who is storing up all of his treasures and he stored them in the attic above his bed. And he stored them and he kept piling them and piling them. And one night while he was sleeping, the ceiling collapsed and all of his riches fell on his head and killed him immediately. And that which he considered to be treasure was his judgment. And so what is God saying? Listen, if you're living by your goodness, then you're going to fall under the indictment of God. And if you're living by your goodness and refusing to see that everything that you have is coming from the loving hand of a heavenly father, and his goal is to get us to understand who we are in light of him and repent. But if we don't, our hearts become so hard that we store up a wrath for that day. And when we get to that place, that is a bad place to be. But then he moves on to the third point. God's indictment against a moralist, God's impatience with a moralist, this one's long, God's impartiality when judging all people. In verse 11, he says, God is impartial. That when God judges all people, he uses one standard. It's not one standard versus another standard or goodness versus somebody's badness. God's standard is always the same. Whether it's a person who, who is walking in his righteousness or a person who considers himself good, it's always his standard. And he begins by saying this, he will render to each one according to his works. Now, moralist loves to hear that. Great, God is going to reward, reward me according to my works. I've got great works. My works are wonderful. But here's the problem. Our works condemn us. They always do. Because not all our works are good. Some of our works are bad. And when God looks at our lives, he doesn't do what the moralist wants to do. Here's what the moralist wants to do. When I get before God on that day, he's going to take all my good works on one side, my bad works on the other side, and if my good works outweigh my bad works, God is going to please be pleased with me. And I'm living my life so my good works are better than my bad works. That's the worst kind of judge you can ever have. Let me give you why. Let's say a murderer, a man's on trial for murder, and this man has killed your daughter and he's on trial for murder, and the judge is listening to the case, and he's, he's, he's there for murder, but then somebody comes up and says, yes, he's a murderer, but let me give you all the good things he's done. He's been a great family man. He's raised great kids. They're all going to college. He, he works at, at, at the Kiwanis Club. He does all of these things in the community. He coaches T-ball. He's been helping with um, underprivileged kids, and, and the judge says, you know what? All of those things seem to be better than the murder. And we only got the murder on this side, but we got all of these things. You know what? I'm just going to release him because of his goodness. You would be outraged. We as a nation would be outraged 
if judges do that? Well, maybe some do. But that's not righteous judgment. And God does not take our works and weigh them next to each other. He uses the same standard. He goes on. He says, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. He's saying those who seek God, seek to glorify God, seek to honor his name, seek to live with him forever. Those who are pursuing God are the ones who are going to have eternal life. Now, then he says this, but for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He's just given a very simple basis that God doesn't show partiality. Those who pursue God will have eternal life with him. Those who pursue self will have wrath and fury. It's that simple. But then he goes on. Because somebody would be asking Paul the question, well, what about those who are not under the law? Then he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And what he's basically saying is there that there's a law within every human heart. We saw that last week. We know right, we know wrong. Some people might say, oh, but my conscience is so well developed that I understand right and wrong. Good, Jiminy Cricket is alive and well on your shoulder. But you don't always obey him. And you don't always obey the word of, that you know to do. And for those who know the word and yet do not obey it, they too are judged by the law. And he says, for it is not the hearers of the law, but it's the doers of the law. Those who are applying the word of God to their life in such a way that there's a sign of transformation. But then somebody may ask the question, what about all those innocent people? The innocent natives who have never heard. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying that those people who don't have the revelation of God's word automatically go to heaven. There were some Jews who believed that Abraham waits at the gates of hell and that he would allow no Jew regardless how evil he was to enter into the gates of hell. Abraham prevented them from going in. So basically, no matter what you do and how bad you are, if you're a Jew, you got a ticket to heaven. That's a lie. And there are many people in our culture who will say, well, listen, if they've never heard the message of the gospel, certainly God can't hold them accountable. That's a lie. Because the truth is evident within them that there's right, there's wrong, there's a God, and no person is without excuse. And people often say to me, Phil, what about the innocent natives? My question is, what innocent native? And by the way, if you care so much about them, why are you here? Why are you here? And so his point is this. Whenever you're living by your good standard, the standard of God will always crush you. And you cannot stand before that. And God is impartial. It doesn't matter your background. 
It doesn't matter. And next week, we'll look at the religious person. But it doesn't matter how moral you are. Here's the fourth thing. God's indictment, his impatience, his impartiality, God's illumination of a moralist heart. Here's the illumination. Here's the truth. One day, you and I are going to stand before God. And every single motive of our heart is exposed. You know, we can play a lot of good games here, can't we? We, we? we can try to think that our goodness is based on our reputation, but God always measures it by fact. And there are two things that we find in this. Notice what he says in verse 16. And on that day, that day, I've always said there are two days in the lives of the early Christians, today and that day. And today I live for that day. And he says, on that day, when according to my gospel, I love the way he says my gospel. It's not that he wrote the gospel. It's just that the good news of Jesus Christ has so been uh, um, uh, implemented into his life that is his only word, his only hope. And so on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here's what we're going to find out on that day. We're going to find out two things. Number one, the motives of my heart with respect to Jesus Christ. The motives of my heart with respect to Jesus Christ. Here it is. Here it is. Is my salvation based upon faith in him? Or is my salvation based upon the works that I can do to earn heaven? Is my salvation based purely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and I'm so surrendered to him that my heart is his or am I trying to live a life that is so good that surely God will say, I need you in heaven. Because that's what it comes down to. It's either going to be a faith relationship with Jesus Christ or it's going to be a work relationship to earn my way to him. And God will measure your heart. Here's the second thing. The motives of my hands with respect to Jesus Christ. What are the motives of my hands? If I'm a child of God, my salvation in Jesus Christ should produce good works. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is accompanied by works. The marks of a person who really belongs to Jesus Christ is it begins with faith, and the overflow of my love for Jesus is that I do good works. But for the moralist, it's this. I'm doing good works so that I can earn faith. And what happens is the good works are never good enough because they never reach the holy standard for a holy God. So here's one thing I want you to know. This is the good news. We don't have to wait until the judgment day to answer those questions. We don't have to wait until we stand before God to answer those questions. Here's a really great diagnostic question that we can ask today. Does the confession of my lips match the conduct of my life? Does the confession of my lips match the conduct of my life? 
If I say Jesus Christ is Lord and I'm saved by grace, then why am I trying to work to earn his pleasure? Now, I walk in obedience, but I walk in obedience because I belong to him. I don't obey in hopes that I will belong to him. And so do, do, do I call him Lord, but is he Lord of my bank account? I call him Lord, but is he Lord of all the decisions that I make in my life? I call him Savior, but do I engage in the kind of works that demonstrate to the culture that he is indeed the Savior? You see, there's the key. Does a confession of my lips match the conduct of my life? And if you're here today and you're not a believer, but you're leaning on your good works, my friend, you are storing up wrath. And it's building and it's building. And one day, God will release it and it will crush you. But what Paul wants you to know today is that your goodness can be laid aside and you can rely on the one who is really good. John MacArthur tells this incredible story of an Indian tribe in North America. And this Native American tribe was known for their strength. They were incredible the strongest tribes got to, find, to control the greatest hunting areas, the fishing areas, and all the resources. And this tribe was the strongest. But they also had a strongest um, chief. And that chief was incredibly strong. He was filled with wisdom and vision. He knew how to lead his people. But he was also filled with integrity because he wanted to lead his people rightly and accurately. So this chief one day discovers that somebody in the tribe is stealing and they will not have that. So he has a tribal meeting. He says, there's a thief among us and it has been going on. If this continues, the one who is captured will receive 10 lashes from our whip master. It kept going and he kept increasing the lashes until he got to the number 40. And everybody in the tribe knew there was only one person who could take 40 lashes, and that is our chief. And then to their horror, they discovered that the thief was the chief's mother, an aged mother who had been stealing. So the tribe is asking themselves the question, is his love going to be the thing that pardons her and excuses her, or is his integrity going to be the thing that rightly judges her? And if it is the integrity, then she will die from the lashes. If it is the love, then he will lose the respect of the people. So what did he do? He charged his mother with thieves. And he sentenced her to 40 lashes. They tied her to the stake with her back facing the whip master. And just before he pulled back the mitt, the chief stood around his mother's frail body and grasp her and took 40 lashes on her behalf because the penalty needed to be paid in an even greater way. That's what Jesus did on a cross for you and me. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. 
There's not a person in this room that is good enough to earn their way into a relationship with God. On your own, you will face wrath. But when you come and allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life, and you allow him to wrap his arms around you, he has taken the penalty that satisfied the wrath of God once and for all. If you're a child of God, you get to walk in that every day. If you're a child of God, you remember it's not your goodness, it's not your accomplishments. There's never a time in your life where you should pat yourself on the back. Woohoo, man, I'm good. We all do that. We all do that. I was driving down the road one day on Market Street. Chris was in the front, and all of a sudden, this car comes pulling right out in front of me. I'm about to T-bone this elderly lady, and I'm thinking, this is it. She's going to be dead. And somehow, I whipped over in the other lane, whipped back around her, and Chris looked at me, and I said, man, I'm good. (laughs) And God just said, no, I'm good. I'm good. And so when we live that way, it is a constant reminder of the goodness of God, isn't it? And now we get to remember, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's not my goodness, it's not my goodness, it's his perfection. And let me tell you what we end up doing. We don't judge other people. We don't point our finger at other people. We don't use ourselves as the standard for how other people ought to live their lives. Because I fail, you fail. The standard is the king who has put his arms around us and has taken the blows for us so that we can be right with God. Immorality will not stand under the wrath of God. Personal morality will not stand under the wrath of God. If you're here this morning and you're leaning in yourself, my friend, let me tell you right now, stop, stop, stop. You can't get there but there is a way that's been paved for you. His name is Jesus. And God is calling you right now. Will you surrender to me? Will you give yourself to that? Believer, will you walk in the grace that you have and walk in the goodness and the mercy and the kindness and not spend your life condemning people who are already condemned, but to love them with the gospel? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. For those who are believers, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today. For those who are not believers today, for those who are leaning on their own goodness, Father, right now, would you shatter their world? And may they see clearly that Jesus is their only hope. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.